Good morning, Stone Point. We are glad that you're here with us this weekend. We are looking forward to hanging out with you today. And we didn't want to miss a significant milestone here. And that's called National Dessert Day all across the nation. Uh, I'm sure people are going to miss it, but we didn't miss it here. And so today, as you're leaving, we want to celebrate with you. And we want to provide for you pineapple upside down cakes. It goes perfectly with the series that we kicked off a few weeks back called Upside Down. In this series called Upside Down, uh, we're basing it off these things called the Beatitudes that are found in Matthew chapter 5 as Jesus begins his famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I realize that you may be new to church, you hadn't been here in quite some time, and you go, I don't even know where Matthew is. Well, real quickly, let me help you. Uh, Your Bible is made up of 66 separate books. It's called Biblia, or the Bible. These books uh, are broken off into two sections. There's the Old Testament, which tells you about a nation. Uh, There's 39 books there. And the second section, there's 29 books, and it tells you about the man, the Messiah, Jesus, who comes from the nation of Israel to seek and save his people. And uh, then throughout the rest of the New Testament, after you see uh, four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are known as the Gospels, you have the early writings of the church and about what was happening in the first century. And so that's your Bible. If you have it, hopefully you can turn to Matthew chapter 5 with us as we dive into these words that Jesus said on this mountain as people have followed him up to hear him teach this famous sermon. A few weeks back, as we began the series, Jesus said something uh, that we had to really think through. And he said, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we look at it a few weeks ago, Jesus was saying, Blessed are the beggarly. Blessed are those who don't have it together. Matter of fact, uh, you know those people, okay? Those people who uh, frustrate you, they annoy you, they beg you, they want a lot of stuff from you. They're demanding of your time, of your resources, and sometimes they just kind of suck the life out of you. That's those people. And those people are the very people that Jesus is after. He's after the people who are beggarly, people who realize that they don't have their lives together. A few weeks ago, one of the things that I think we learned most is that even though there are people who annoy us, we are those people. And when we can realize that we are, in a sense, beggarly, that we're poor in spirit, that we're sinners, then we can begin to see how God would move us into his kingdom. He then says also, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the idea oftentimes is misquoted because we think, Oh, blessed are those who cry after the loss of a loved one or who who mourn in times of of hardships, but that's not what he's talking about. He goes, blessed are those who realize that they have a beggarly condition and who mourn over that, who are saddened by their sin problem, for they shall find comfort. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The idea of meek uh, brings the idea of humility and self-control. It, it, the, the Greek word uses the idea of a stallion that has been bridled. It still has the same power that it's always had, but now it lives under control. And so when you think about what Jesus is teaching, he goes, hey, blessed are those who realize that they have a sin problem. Blessed are those who are sad over their sin plot problem. And blessed are those who realize that in their sin problem, they can have humility and self-control that leads to the inheritance 
of the kingdom of God and all that he has to possess in the land. That's what he's talking about. And then when you get to uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus says, Now blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The idea here, Jesus is beginning uh, to play off of those other three statements that he's made. And he goes, blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting. And the, the key is, though, he says, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Now, you think about the day and time that we live in. There's a lot of things that we hunger and thirst after. I'm not talking about a blizzard, and I'm not talking about pineapple upside down cakes that we're going to bless with you, you here with in a little while. What I'm talking about is a, a deep-seated hunger and thirst in your soul, and Jesus says it should be after righteousness. Solomon, he writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that God has put eternity in our hearts. The idea is that we as humans recognize that there is something that, that should complete us. And oftentimes we're looking for that next best thing to fill the void in our lives. And for some of us, for a long time, we've been after a quest to numb our pain, to fill the void, and we think of lots of different ways that we could do that. For some of us in this room, we may be searching for power or authority. That may be what gives you the desire to be who you are. For some, it's success. Uh, it's fame, it's notoriety. Uh, others of you, it may just be that you want comfort and you want peace and you just want everything in your life to be just a still, calm setting. For others of you, you long for happiness and you wonder how you could find it. Perhaps you think maybe if you just found that special someone that you could settle down with, or if you had that great friend, you know that friend that you don't have now, but you wish you had, if you had that, maybe you would have fulfillment. And so we think of relationships. Others of us are looking for money. You think, you know what, I've got decent money now, but if I could just double my income, I would be so much more satisfied. A lot of us, we think about love. Most of us in here, we want love. We want to be accepted. Even though we're known, uh, we want to be loved. And we're so scared of being known, right? So we hide the best we can. We kind of keep people at a distance. But what Jesus is saying is you're never going to find fulfillment in all the things that the world has to offer. Matter of fact, if you look what he says, he goes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I think what he's talking about is the very thing that Solomon mentioned, that, that God-shaped vacuum in our lives, that God has placed eternity in our hearts, that at the end of the day, we want to live a life of purpose and meaning. Matter of fact, a lot of people look down on millennials today and they wonder if they're lazy or they're apathetic. And, and what I have found, because I happen to be a millennial, is that that's not the case at all. But I'll tell you what millennials want. They want to live a life of purpose. They want to make things count. And if you can give them a big vision, they're willing to hop on. The question is, is what are we leading people towards? Well, Jesus says we should be leading people after righteousness. Now, the question is, what is righteousness? I mean, righteousness is really the idea of integrity. It's the idea of value and virtue and purity in our lives. Something that I think our society lacks as a whole. Matter of fact, the idea in the Greek of this word righteousness, dia kosune, is the idea 
of right standing with God. And the question is, how do you get right standing with God? Well, what's interesting is I think Jesus is kind of leading the way towards it. Think about it. He goes, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. He goes, blessed are those who, they look at their lives and they don't have, they don't have to gather. Week one, um, I, I just plainly said, I'm a loser. Uh, week two, I told you about how sad that makes me, that my sin problem separates me from a holy God. And because of that, it, it brings me to a place where I'm not weak, but I have to be meek that I have to be self-controlled, that I have to be sober-minded, that I have to be alert of what God's trying to do. Why? Because what God is trying to do by His grace, through His Spirit, is draw me and mankind into His presence to where we would have a deep longing in the very depths of our being desire righteousness, that we would hunger and thirst after it. Matter of fact, the Greek words there means that there would be uh, an anguish in our, in our mouth that we want to have quenched. It's, it's as if we uh, continually have to come back because there's uh, this dryness and the hunger. It's a pain in our stomachs that leads us to wanting more. That's the idea. Jesus says, I want to satisfy you. Will you follow me? That's the charge that he's given us, a right standing for God. And the question is, well, maybe, maybe that's what I want, but maybe I'm confused. Maybe I think I'm searching after him, but maybe I'm searching after everything else. And I'll tell you, I think so many of us, including myself, if we're not careful, we become double-minded. That in one hand, we can claim to love God, but if we look carefully, we'll see that we're hungering and thirsting after other gods. And so let me just tell you that there's this woman uh, in the Bible. Uh, matter of fact, if you have your Bible with you, um, you can turn just a couple of books over to the book of John. It's another one of the Gospels, the good news about Jesus. And in John chapter 4, Jesus is going to be leaving the area of Judea, and he's going to come through this place in Samaria. And when you get to uh, this place in Samaria, he's going to come to a place called Sychar. Um, in verse 5, it says that Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So Jesus, about midway through the day, about the hour of lunchtime, um, is sitting in this well because he's made his way down from the area of Judea where his ministry has been, and he's going through Samaria. Now, there's a couple of interesting things here that you should note. Number one, Jesus is a Jew. Number two, Jews strongly dislike Samaritans. I would even say that the appropriate word in here, even though we would tell our children that it's not appropriate, is the word hate. Jews hate Samaritans. Matter of fact, it was very common in the Jewish custom for a Jew, instead of going through the area of Samaria, to go around it. They did not want to interact with these people in which they would refer to as dogs or half-breed mutts. You might wonder, well, how did the Samaritans come to be? Well, Samaritans are a group of different people uh, that were moved in by the king of Assyria, and they uh, they ultimately came up with their own religion. 
Now, the religion did not pay any attention to the Jewish prophets, but it did pay attention to the Jewish Torah, which would have been Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament that tell you about the nation and the laws of that nation. And what they would do is is they would make themselves um, a place where they would worship. And so they had their own temple. They worshiped in a place uh, called Shechem. Uh, They had a mountain, Mount Gerizim, in which they worshiped on. They held to the first five books. They came up with their own Samaritan priesthood. Uh, They made their own claim to land and a mountain. And they claimed to worship God, even though it was not the God of the Bible. And they claimed to be right. So they were very sincere in their Bible, uh, the very first five books, but they made up their own gods, in which we would say was sincerely wrong. Eventually, uh, I think you could make very strong uh, claims that they would become, uh, in a sense, tied up with some Arab states, and they would uh, worship foreign gods that we claim to have the same father as Christianity or us. We would claim to have Abraham as our father. And so here it is, Jesus has come to the area of Samaria. He is around these people who the Jews strongly dislike, and he runs into this woman from Samaria. Uh, He's in this place called Sychar, which is ancient Shechem, the same place that in 2 Kings chapter 17, uh, the Samaritan culture was born. And here's what you have. Uh, You have Jesus sitting by a well, Uh, And he runs into this woman in verse 7, a woman from Samaria that came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. The idea here is this. uh, He he was thirsty. Uh, He was parched. Uh, He is weary from his journey is what we read just a few moments ago. Jesus wanted to rest. And he comes to a place in which he could find a quenching for his thirst. Now, what's interesting is, is if you know much about Jewish tradition and this Old Testament that I spoke of a few minutes earlier, what you'll know is that in Jewish life, a well was a symbol of life. It was a symbol um, that you would, in a sense, have a place of significance. It was water. Uh, It brought about um, a significant memory to them. And so what the Jewish people would do is they would dig wells and it was a place in which they would find water and life and it would be a blessing to all that would come near. The other thing is, is that uh, as they thought about a well, it was also a reminder of covenant blessings. It was a reminder of the Messiah. Why? Because a well brings life. Well, who else brings life? Well, the promised seed of Abraham, the one that we would call Jesus. And so when they think about a well in that culture, they would think of one that produced water, a quench for our thirst, life, a promise of a future hope called the Messiah. That's what they thought. And that's what they looked for. You know what's so interesting is, as you go back to uh, Genesis, you would see that oftentimes uh, life was promoted there. Matter of fact, you go back to uh, Abraham uh, and his servant, uh, Eliezer. He would find a wife, Rebecca, at the well. Uh, she was beautiful in both form and face. Jacob found Rachel at a well. They were married and there was life. Moses found his wife, Zipporah, at a well. So you may wonder, what is the significance here? Well, here it is. Jesus is meeting this woman at the well. And this woman 
is a Samaritan. She is, in a sense, in the Jewish mind, a half-breed, no-good woman. And he asked her for a drink. Verse 8 tells us why. Because the disciples had gone away to buy burgers at Whataburger. So they'd gone to get food, and he stayed behind. And he goes, hey, can you give me some water? And here's what she replies. Look at it in verse 9. The woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Even she is baffled by it. She knows that Jewish men do not walk through Samaria, let alone talk to Samaritan women. It is unheard of. It is unfounded. And she asks the intriguing question, why is it that you were here drinking at this well, talking to me? And then look at Jesus' response. He says something here that is so significant. In verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. Now think about this. Jesus is a Jew. He knows what a well brings. It brings life and it brings hope. Hope of what? Salvation. Do you see what he said there? He goes... You are asking for, you are asking me why I speak to you. I've asked you for water, but if you knew what it was that I'm trying to accomplish here, the gift of God that I would bring, which is salvation and life, and you knew who it was that you were talking to, the one who is saying to you, give me a drink, which is Messiah, the hope of salvation, then he says, then you would be given living water. Like you would know what it is. And water reminds you of the spring of Israel, the life that it brings. It's a picture of God's indwelling in us, of the picture of eternal life, the Holy Spirit, life and life to the full. Then verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, but you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's essentially saying, but you you don't even have anything. You're not even prepared to get water here. There's this well, and it has water, and it can quench your thirst. It can give you a place of rest, though you're weary, but you've got nothing to draw from. You, You have nothing. And then she asked a question. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. So she said, now let me ask you a question. Do you know Jacob, the the father that we would claim to have? Uh, He was from Abraham. You, You know him? And then Jesus says, yes, but the one who drinks of the well that he has, remember they're sitting at Jacob's well, you're going to be thirsty again. The idea was is that this well does prolong your life, but at the end of the day, even though your thirst is quenched, you're still eventually going to die. This, this is not going to bring healing to your bones. It satisfies for a time, but I want to give you a drink from me, a gift of God, salvation and hope, in which you'll never thirst again. 
I want to satisfy you to the very death of your being, and I want to do so forever. And then, Jesus says, the water that I will give him will soon become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Look at her response. She goes, okay, wait a second. You're telling me that you've got water in which will quench my thirst forever. I want some of that because I get tired of having to bring uh, this pitcher with me. I get tired of carrying this thing. It, 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 it wears me out having to come here to this well by myself with no help. No other Samaritan woman will te- uh, talk to me. I'm here at the middle of the day and, and no one has anything to do with me. Not only am I a Samaritan, but I'm a woman that's looked upon da- down even by the people in our culture. So if you can give me that water, then I'm interested. Here's what she wanted. She didn't want eternal life. She wanted physical perks. That's called duplicity. Think about it for just a second. Jesus says, blessed, makarios, happy are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So on one hand, we go, okay, I want God. But on the other hand, we say, I want God and I want to worship him, but I also have other things that I want to worship that appeal to my appetite. And what Jesus is saying, he goes, I have no need or no room for duplicity. This woman is simply saying, hey, give me the water. I don't have to come back here again. That would be fantastic. But then Jesus does something interesting. In order for him to get her to recognize what he's going to do for her, he has to reveal the very depth of her depravity. Okay, think about this for just a second. In order for him to get her to hunger and thirst after his righteousness, he is going to begin with her challenges, with her sinfulness, with her beggarly state. So Jesus says to her in verse 16, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answers him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Can you imagine how baffled this woman must have been? At this point, she has to clearly recognize that she is talking to someone. Matter of fact, when you get uh, to verse um, 19, the woman is going to say, I perceive that you're a prophet. You, you know something that no one else seems to know. And here's what Jesus does here. He points out the radical nature of her sinfulness. This woman, a Samaritan, a half-breed in the Jewish eyes, is across from this man who has taken time to sit down with her at this well. And his desire is not to give her a water in which will quench her thirst for a few short minutes, but his desire is to give her a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Why? Because when you get that, that's when your soul is satisfied. But in order for you to be able to get to a place of humility that where Jesus can step in and satisfy you, you have to understand the depth of your sinfulness. And when Jesus is sitting across from this woman, he says, I know that you've had five husbands and the man you're living with, this sixth man, is not your husband. This woman must cringe right there in her seat. 
For the depth of her depravity is no longer an ethnicity. It's not about being a Samaritan woman. It's about being a sinful woman. And she is sitting in the presence of Jesus, the one who not only created life, but the one who sustains life and the one who desires to give life and give it to the full. And Jesus' greatest hope is that this woman would recognize her beggarly state. That she would recognize that she's poor in spirit. That without Him, that she is merely doing worship out of routine. And she's even sincerely worshiping the wrong God. That she would reduce herself to being a place where she is not only beggarly and poor in spirit, but that she would mourn over that sin, that she would, in a sense, reflect over the husbands that she has had, and that she would recognize her immorality, that she would recognize the deep longing in her soul to be loved. F.F. Bruce, a great theologian, says that this woman is not merely immoral. She just has a desire to be loved. But let me ask you a question. In our quest to be loved, what will we search after in order to fill the void? And the answer is we will search after endless pursuits in order to fulfill the deep longing of our hearts. And that is acceptance and love and purpose. What's interesting is this isn't talking about just a woman at the well. This isn't talking about just a woman who wants to be loved. This is talking about Samaritans. Samaritans, in 2 Kings chapter 17, were made up of five different people in which all five clans tried their own God. And now it's that they've moved to the sixth. This is a real woman he's talking about. He's not just talking to her. He's talking about to all the Samaritans. He says, you are missing life. You have supreme devotion to your gods. You obey the Torah, and which is my word. You have neglected the prophets. You have missed the Messiah. You have failed to see that salvation is found in the well of life that comes from Jesus. And I want to offer you hope. And so Jesus is here and he offers hope and he gets into this conversation, this woman who perceives him to be a prophet and look at the conversation and how it goes. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Remember, Gerasim at Shechem. But you say that there is a holy mountain, right? In Jerusalem, the people where they should worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus says a couple of profound things here. He says, Listen, worship is not bound to a place. It's not bound to merely a people. It's not about being Jew or Gentile. It's not about being slave or free. It's not about being woman or male. It's not about circumcised or uncircumcised. He says it's about having your worship in the right place. He says you've worshiped on a mountain to a God in which you don't know, that doesn't hear you, that doesn't answer And he goes, you are sincere in it, but he goes, you're missing it. Why? Because salvation and Messiah didn't come from the Samaritan people. You're searching in your quest to find the God who will satisfy you, 
But he says, y'all went through five gods and now you're on another one. And he goes, you've yet to be satisfied because salvation comes from the Jews and their Messiah. It comes from the one who is from the lineage of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. The very one that you trace your lineage back. He says, the only difference is, is that you have gotten off kilter. You're hungering and thirsting, thirsting after the wrong thing. Because you worship what you don't know, but we, we worship what we do know. And then he says, the hour is coming and it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such a people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him will worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. They, he, is called the Christ. They call him the Christ. And when he comes, I know he'll tell us all of these things. And then can you imagine this moment? She's sitting there in this state of being reduced to her sinfulness, her faith, her motives, all have been put in question. And then Jesus utters these words, I whom speak to you am he. He says, I am the Messiah. I am Jesus. Now, this is an irony. He's sitting at Jacob's well, a symbol and a sign of Jewish heritage, a symbol of life and hope and expectation of what's to come a promise of salvation, and he says, I want to give you something that will quench your thirst forever. I want to satisfy the deepest longing in your soul. It's me that you need. And then Jesus uh, then saw his disciples came back and they marveled because he's talking with a woman. But no one said, hey, what, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and she went away to the town, to the people. And I want you to see what she did next. She said, come and see a man who, who's told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Her response was to drink of the water of life. And you know what it did? It spurred something in her that says, come and see. Come and see. You know what the beggar does? They mourn over their sin. In this gentle meekness, they strive after God and they find Him because they are in humility searching for someone to make provision for their lives. And when you, when you search for that provision, when you hunger and you thirst in your beggarly state, Jesus says, you'll find me. And when you find me, I will meet all of your needs. I will satisfy your soul. I will give you life. It will be like springing up from Jacob's well. But instead of drinking water from a cistern, you can drink water of life. Now think about this real quickly. There's a lot of us in this room that if we're quite honest, we have been running to wells that are dried up. There's nothing to offer there. We're looking for relationships to fill the void. We're looking for popularity and fame and prestige, notoriety, authority, a job change, a promotion, more money, more satisfaction, more encouragement. 
For some of us, we're looking to get past this one thing, maybe an addiction, and maybe it's that we're running to this relationship. Whatever it may be, we continually come to wells that are dried up, or when you scoop to the bottom of them, all you come up with is slush. And there's just nothing there of any real value and substance. And when you wake up, after you've come out of this bad dream, the things that you're running towards, you realize that your life is still empty, that it's still without purpose, and that there should be more. And Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of more. Quit comparing yourself to others. Quit coming in worship and being sincerely off base. Quit worrying about this and that, and just hunger and thirst after my righteousness, for there you'll find satisfaction for your souls. There's some of you that you're not even to the place of hungering and thirsting after righteousness because you've not reduced yourself to being poor in spirit. You look at your life and you go, hey, uh, I've got it all together, but I'll tell you there's going to be a day where you're going to get a diagnosis. There's going to be a day where your body begins to wear out and you're going to realize that it was something supreme in your life that created a God-shaped vacuum in your heart that you're going to have to depend on. Because right now you're strong and you're vibrant and life is good, but what happens when you're reduced to not having a life that's good? What happens when your mortal body begins to wear out because of all the immorality in our lives? The question, what will you turn to? And Jesus says, you should turn to me. He says, come, all who are weary, cast your cares upon me, and I will give you rest. You can hunger and you can thirst, and in me you'll find righteousness. And when you find righteousness, then it's going to lead to several things. And I want you to just see real quickly what it leads to. In Matthew chapter 5, we've seen verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, but I want you to just see as we'll follow in the coming weeks what Jesus leads to when you have a life of righteousness, when you follow Him, when you trust Him for salvation and hope because He's the promised Messiah. He says, you'll be merciful. You'll be pure in heart. You'll be peacemakers. And you'll withstand even though you're persecuted for righteousness. What a promise. The fulfillment found in Jesus offers life. We never have to hunger or thirst again. We no longer have to seek something else out in life because we have found it in Christ and Christ alone. It is Him and Him alone that saves and produces us in us the fruit of righteousness. May we turn to Him, may we run to Him, may we love Him, may we be known by Him. And may we share with others the same as the Samaritan, a broken woman did. Come and see what my God has done in my life. You may wonder, well, why the Samaritan woman? And here's why. You ready? The Samaritan woman is us. She is a Gentile woman who Jesus spends time with. She is, in a sense, the mother 
of all Gentile faith in Christ. She is the one who we should identify with. We're not Jews, and so we can't look to John chapter 3 and see the story of Nicodemus. You know who we have to look to? We have to look to the Samaritan half-breed mutt that the Jews looked down upon. They rejected. They didn't want anything to do with them. And yet Jesus says, I'll offer salvation to anyone who will come after me. Deny themselves and take with the cross. And when you find me, you'll be satisfied. Praise God that Jesus pursues even us in our sin problem. Let me pray for us, church. Heavenly Father, we love you. We delight in knowing you and your truth. And I pray that today as we leave this place, that not only would our hunger be satisfied by pineapple upside down cake, and I pray that our thirst would not merely be satisfied by the coffee we drink, but I pray that when we leave this place, we are deeply satisfied in knowing your son, Jesus, the one who came for Samaritans, sinful people who reduced themselves in a beggarly state to seek you and find you. Lord, you tell us that if we'll knock, that the door will be open to us. And so, Lord, we come pleading that not only um, God, would you find mercy on us, but ultimately that you would offer us grace and fulfillment and a place in your kingdom. I pray that we would desire to hunger and thirst after you, that the so um, the soul longings that we have, that the very core of our being would be satisfied and filled in you and in your precious son. We love you. We thank you and we give this day to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.